Lord Jesus, as you were revealed as the Messiah in the temple, reveal yourself as the Messiah to us as we study your word. Amen. Has it ever seemed strange to you that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple in this way? Because it seems to me to be quite an odd thing to do, given what Luke tells us about Jesus. Mary has just completed the holiest work that any human being has ever done, up to that point in history, possibly for the whole of history. She has given birth to the incarnate God. If being holy means being set aside for God and acting in accordance with his will, it doesn't get any holier than that. What ritual could possibly purify or sanctify her after that act of commitment to the Lord? And Jesus, the Holy One, surely he doesn't need any ritual or any sacrifice to make him acceptable to God. He is himself God's offering for the life of the world. Why does he need the sacrifice of two birds to be made more holy, as if any improvement on the status of the incarnate God was possible? And if you read the commentaries, you'll see that people will say, and I think it's right, that this was done to fulfil the law, that Jesus was to live a life in perfect accordance with God's commandments given in the Old Covenant, so that he could redeem us for all the times that we have failed to keep God's commandments. But I think it is also reassuring that these acts that were done for the infant Jesus are the sort of things that parents have always wanted to do with and for their children. I remember taking my son home from the hospital the first time. It seemed an incredible responsibility. It almost seemed that they'd let us out of the hospital by mistake because we weren't ready for it. And to look to God and say, I don't deserve this. Please make me worthy. And to look at the world and say, the world can be a dark place. Please protect my son. Prayers like that must have been offered in every language, in every country on earth by those who believe. And I think it's the same instincts that called Jesus' parents to bring their son, their firstborn, and present him before God. So God enters the world not only in perfect fulfilment of the law, but also as part of an ordinary family. A family with the same human nature as ours, doing what God's law and the law of Israel required. Also doing what believing parents 
have always done, responding to the giver of life in awe and gratitude and worship. And now we see this ordinary family meet two extraordinary people. Two people who do not react to this baby as if he were an ordinary child. Two people who remind us that something astonishing lies behind this commonplace dedication service. First we meet Simeon. We're not told in so many words, but I think it's quite clear from the text that Simeon is an old man. You wouldn't tell somebody that they're not going to die until such and such a thing happens if the end of their life didn't appear to you to be imminent. So it seems that Simeon has already lived longer than he expected. It's quite possible that when he comes to the temple that day, he knows that he's coming to the end of his life. He may be ill or tired or in pain. What we are told about him is that he is looking for the consolation of Israel that he's been promised that he will see the Messiah, the one who will restore God's people. And when he sees Jesus, he immediately knows that the promise has been fulfilled. And then he speaks words of incredible faith and devotion. And to me, are words that are still astonishingly beautiful. Master, you are now dismissing your servant in peace. According to your word, my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. He hasn't seen any of Jesus' miracles. He hasn't experienced any healing. And none is promised to him. He hasn't heard a word of Jesus' teaching. Jesus is yet to speak on this world. He certainly hasn't seen anything of the messianic promise. (coughs) The military occupation of Rome is still there and will still be there. This baby is not going to change that, at least not in the time that Simeon expects to live. He hasn't seen society renewed to perfect justice. He hasn't been told that his sins are forgiven. All that has happened is that he has seen the baby who is central to God's plan. And his faith is so great that for him that's enough. That's all he needs to be ready to depart. He doesn't need proof that God has fulfilled every promise, every plan that God is working to. It's enough for Simeon to know that it's coming. It's more important for Simeon to know that God is saving the world than that Simeon is going to be around to receive all those benefits. 
That's what trust in God that Simeon displays looks like. As long as God is acting, that's all he needs, and he is content. Now, because Simeon is wise as well as faithful, he has some idea about what God's action might look like. God is acting from and through the traditions of Israel, God's chosen people. But Simeon sees that salvation and revelation won't be, can't be, just limited to them. God's plan will encompass all nations. Simeon sees that it will cause many to rise and fall. He does not expect God's intervention to confirm his prejudice, his expectations, his views of what society is or should be like. He expects God to overturn our systems. That action of God overturns our own self-assurance. Our own belief that when we are blessed, we're getting what we deserve. And when something goes wrong, God necessarily is on our side against our enemies. To see God as overturning our systems reveals the value in those we despise and shows the flaws in those we respect. Because God's salvation isn't a running repair that gets his world back on track when it's gone slightly astray. God's intervention will be a radical reorientation of our world. And Simeon knows that. He also knows that because God's intervention is radical, it will be opposed. Simeon saw an ultimate fulfilment of God's plan when he saw the face of a holy child. But he knew that it was possible for someone not to love God. That a call to turn people's hearts back to God would be met with resentment with anger, with hatred. God's plans meet with resistance in this world because our sinful systems of society, of government and our own sinful habits of life are opposed to him. And when we meet with God, when we are forced to confront ways that are different to ours, another of Simeon's prophecies is true. The inner thoughts of many will be revealed. We find out what we really are like. We find out what it is that we really value. When Simeon saw Jesus, he knew that God's salvation was his deepest desire. And having seen that, he didn't need anything else. But he knew it would be possible to recoil from God's love. Because God's love demands a costly response.
Simeon had lived his life under enemy occupation, dreaming of the day when God's people would be free to live and to live out God's values. And he knew that commitment to God's ideals would would cost and could hurt. And he had some foreknowledge of the even greater pain that Mary herself would face. But despite that, he had no doubt that it would ultimately be worthwhile. That's why he was content to end his life, just knowing that God's plan had begun. And to me, that would be a beautiful story all on its own. But then we meet Anna. And we're only told a few things about her. She was a widow of 84. She had had a short marriage of seven years, which likely ended a very long time ago. So all her plans, all her expectations of her early life must have been completely overthrown by that tragedy. We don't know if she had children. We don't know if she had any other living family. We don't know if she was rich or poor. We know that she was devoted to the temple and to the God worshipped there. And Luke calls her a prophet. But we don't know if her prophetic vocation was widely recognised and she was held in the highest respect. Or if she was seen by some as being that crazy old woman who's always hanging around the temple and treated with disdain. Either you can easily imagine from the words of the text. What do we know? Well, we know she saw Jesus and she simply had to tell everyone about him. Everyone who she thought was hoping for Jerusalem to be free. And for a Jew of the first century, that's everyone she met. She told them about Jesus. What she said about Jesus, we just don't know. We don't know how much God had told her about what he was doing. But she knew that God was doing something. That this child was important. This child was central. And she simply had to announce that. Anna and Simeon respond to God in very different ways. Simeon sees Jesus and experiences complete peace. It's all he needs. He's now ready to leave the world once he's seen him. Anna sees Jesus and she is fired with immediate action. She isn't remotely ready to depart in peace. 84 years isn't remotely enough for her. She wants to change the world, not leave it. She would always, no matter how long she lived, have had one more person that she was just dying to share the good news with. Simeon embodies the trust of God's people. Anna embodies their joy. Simeon's faith brings insight. Anna's brings exuberance. 
but they are both moved by the same Spirit. Is it better to be like Simeon or like Anna? I suspect some of us immediately identify with one or the other or aspire to be like one or the other. But Luke gives us no encouragement at all in thinking that either of them responded in a way that was more pleasing to God. The truth is the church needs both contentment and joy. It needs both peace and action, trust and enthusiasm. And we also need to recognise that the way we are called to respond to God may well be different to the way that others respond to God. There are different and equally valid ways of turning to him in faith and repentance. This Gospel reading undermines any grounds that we have to criticise somebody else's way of worshipping and responding, if done in faith. Simeon's and Anna's both need to be welcomed and valued here. But different though they are, they do have one thing in common. And that is neither of them love God because of what God might do for them and what they might get out of it alone. Neither see God saving them personally as being what really matters. They both see and express salvation as extending to all of God's people. The consolation of Israel the redemption of Jerusalem. And I think that is the way to have both trust and joy. It is to reach that level of selflessness and humility that sees the Gospel in terms that isn't all about me. It's not about just where I go when I die what I get out of going to church, how my life can be changed. But rather it's about what God is doing. What plans of God are being fulfilled? It's not wrong to want to be saved personally. It's essential. But wanting to be saved personally won't give you Simeon's peace or Anna's joy if that's all you care about. That can only happen, can only happen to me when I am humble enough to look at Jesus and seeing God doing something greater than I can imagine for a world that is beyond my perspectives. Greater in scope, more incredible, compared to anything that is happening in my life. And at that point, when I give up my own interests, when I focus on something other than my own personality, 
it may be that my truly different personality will begin to be expressed as clearly as was Simeon's or Anna's. It's when they forgot themselves and focused on God that in just a few lines we see what incredible, what faithful, what wonderful people they must have been. It's the same with us. If you would be truly yourself, focus on God. Look to Jesus. Amen.